The Southern Foodways Alliance believes that well-told stories complement well-mixed drinks. If you agree, check out our latest book, The Southern Foodways Alliance Guide to Cocktails. Authors Jerry Slater and Sarah Camp Milam gathered classic and contemporary recipes from more than 20 bartenders working all across the American South. The 88 cocktail recipes are accompanied by stories of spiritist lore. Think of them as conversation starters for your next gathering. Pick up a copy of the SFA Guide to Cocktails wherever you buy books. Cheers, and happy reading. Artist and poet Hannah Drake of Louisville, Kentucky, hosts occasional all-female dinners. She asks each guest, each woman, to bring two things, a dish and their mother. It just reminded me how we are here in America and we wonder why we do these things and we don't know why we do them. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. Dinners with a purpose are having a moment. Suppers with a conscience are on the rise. From suppers that celebrate refugees in flux, forced to negotiate new identities, to dinners focused on conversations about uneasy subjects like racism. Over okra soup and jollof rice, an evening feast is where we connect through discussions of politics and identities and histories. Come to think of it, dinners have always afforded opportune moments to think through what vexes us and what delights us and what nourishes us. Today, reporter Roxanne Scott takes us to a kitchen in Louisville, Kentucky, where one woman encourages African-Americans to connect to Africa over food. Hannah Drake has been waiting for this dinner. Hello. How are you, Roxanne? I'm okay. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I can't complain about one Eleven women are supposed to show up in about two hours this Saturday morning for a big midday meal. Hannah's preparing roasted chicken and caprese salad. Her 21-year-old daughter, Brianna, is baking cornbread. Hannah has long black braids that spiral curl at the ends. She wears thick brown framed glasses and a blue dress. This is Hannah's third dinner in her series, Stories from the Hem of My Mother's Apron. The first one brought together 10 women in Louisville. Her second dinner was in Natchez, Mississippi. And this past June was her third one back in Louisville. The idea for the dinner series came to her a year ago and more than 4,000 miles from her Kentucky home. Hannah visited Senegal on the western coast of Africa with an interdisciplinary arts group called Roots and Wings that wants to forge a connection between West Africa and Appalachian cultures. Eight artists, including dancers, actors, and poets, made the trip. To Hannah's knowledge, she doesn't have a familial link to the country. It was the first time actually I left the country, and it was the first time to go, of course, to leave the country, but to go to Africa. Everywhere, if you went to someone's home, they just gave you everything. And the food, they lay this tablecloth, but they lay it on the floor. And there's a big tray, and the food is all on this tray. She remembers eating dishes like chibodien. Senegal's national savory dish of fish, rice, and vegetables, 
cooked in tomato sauce in one pot. She also ate pulayasa, another classic dish in the country made of marinated chicken, caramelized onions, garlic, and lemon. And you eat with your, what was it, your right hand or your left hand? I can't remember. It's, you, you eat with your right hand, not with your left hand. At first, I thought, no, I'm going to need me a fork. You know? <laughs> and it was amazing how everyone would just come together around this food. I just really thought, wow, if we could come together around this table and eat, what stories would we tell? But Hannah doesn't just want to wax poetic over bread. She wants to document the recipes and conversations we bring to the table. She doesn't want those recipes to vanish. But to her, that's exactly what they end up doing. She thinks she knows at least one reason why. Hannah found this out through cooking lessons with her daughter. And I taught her how to cook, uh, pick green beans. Now my daughter, I don't know if she'd be playing or what, but she's like, it don't, it don't never taste like yours. And I'm like, Brianna, I've taught you this a million times. I'm not putting anything, but it, you must be putting something on a secret. What she said is, which makes sense, is all you say is add a little bit of this and put a little bit of that. <laughs> and she said, I need measurements. I need <laughs> I really started reading about the gentrification of soul food. And what I found when I was here in Natchez, I'm sure this is everywhere, is we don't write down our recipes. Hannah also says there's a bonding and shared history that gets passed down while cooking with loved ones. For example, when she cooks with Brianna. But that's not happening as much these days. I was telling her when we're in the kitchen, we talk and we share stories. And who taught you how to cook that? And that's how you learn about your grandparents. And that's how you, it's just what we do. And without those moments between generations, Hannah calls her daughter's peers, yes, the millennials, a storyless generation. And then my, I told my daughter that, and she said, if, if we don't have the stories, it's because y'all didn't tell us. Adrian Miller has more to say about this. He's a culinary historian in Denver, Colorado. He's written two books, one about the history of soul food and one about African-American chefs in the White House. He talks about why these stories aren't getting passed down anymore. I think there's several things going on. First of all, because of just gender roles and roles for African-Americans in our society, a lot of people were forced to cook rather than pursue some other profession. So I think once the civil rights movement happened and other job opportunities opened up, people fled the kitchen because they, didn't ha they weren't forced to cook there anymore. He says there's another possible reason. I think the other thing is that just the stresses on being a double-income family meant a lot of people turned to convenience food and fast food to feed their families rather than you know, the home-cooked meal, except maybe on the weekends and special occasions. So there's just fewer opportunities for that connection across the generations in the kitchen. Hannah's daughter, Brianna Wright, 21, studies computer science at the University of Louisville. Brianna's hair is in twists pulled up in a bun. She's wearing a black T-shirt with her mother's Beyonce-inspired poem called Formation written on the front. She takes a break while her cornbread is in the oven to explain more about what she sees as her storyless generation. We haven't really lived long enough to have stories of our own, so the stories we would know would be from our parents, our, our grandparents, or any other family member. And when I realized that after Senegal, I called my grandma and was like, hey, tell me about your life. And like, you know, it was kind of depressing, and she told me about the cotton picking. Her grandmother, Hannah's mother, 
at one point picked cotton in Tennessee for 80 cents a day. Walking everywhere, and maybe that's just my laziness, but it just sounded terrible. Like she was like, I had to walk four miles and five miles over here and blisters, and I only had one pair of shoes. And I was like, she didn't have shoes at some point. It was just, it's just important to teach stories. And by stories, she means everything from family history to folk tales, as well as recipes. I think if we started that up, it would connect black people again. Back to Miller on the significance of food as a narrative to create a familiar sense of belonging in a new world. So one thing to understand is that when people move from one place to another, even if it's by force, which was the case with African-Americans and our enslaved African ancestors, often when they get to the new place, they try to recreate home. And food is one of the easiest ways to recreate home. As enslaved families were separated from one another, Passing down shared family histories was difficult, if not impossible. And, and in Senegal, it's, if you can't go back seven generations, they tell you to go talk to somebody else in your family. You're supposed to be able to go back. you know. And I'm thinking, how far can I go back? I'm thinking, my mom, my grandma, and that's it. You know what I'm saying? So when we came back, I really was like, and not know, I'm going to do Ancestry.com. <laughs> You know, because I was telling Bree, I was like, I don't know if I dress that all the way. I said, they could be like, oh, she black, hand on the synagogue, she, you know, I don't know. So I was like. Hannah's mother is still alive. She lives in Colorado. Hannah's not close to her mother, but the time she does talk to her, Hannah gets to hear a lot of stories about her dad, who died five years ago. Stories that helped Hannah understand her passion for art and activism. My mom said, you know, your dad used to be into all that. And I said, what? You know, <laughs> and she said, yeah. She said, when your dad was in college, my dad was is born and raised in Louisville, and he went to Kentucky State. And HBCU here in Kentucky. She said, yeah, he was all into that, and Black Power and Black Panthers. A pivotal moment for her dad was reading the book Man, Child, and the Promised Land by Claude Brown, a story about growing up in the civil rights era. Now it makes sense why I do some of the things that I do. And I wished that I had talked to him and got that from him before he died. We never shared those stories. And to hear my mom tell me that, I wonder, like, in our families, how much information and stuff is just gone. And I would always be so envious of people that had this his, this family history that's just, like my family history is just like a, a mystery. I just don't know. And, you know, after everyone's dead, then it's just gone. And even our recipes, it's just, it's gone. You think it's just cornbread or it's just greens or it's just chicken, but once you really start getting into it, it's like it's a whole lot of stuff behind that cornbread and greens and chicken. Miller on the importance of having a link to our past. One of the frustrations is that because poor records were kept, a lot of us don't know exactly where we're from in West Africa. And there are DNA tests that can approximate some of these things, but we just don't know for sure. So I think the idea that we are preserving our foodways is at least one tangible way to maintain a connection to the past. 
I think maintaining those traditional food ways and having that knowledge pass from generation to generation gives us a connection to our ancestors that I think is just something special. And I'd hate to lose that. And for a while, I thought we were in danger of losing that in a significant way because it seemed like we had a generation of people who lost interest in cooking and weren't transmitting that knowledge to the younger generation. But now in this foodie moment of our culture, I think there's much more interest in cooking. And so the idea of home cooking is being revived. Hannah's hoping in her small kitchen in Louisville, Kentucky, to reclaim history. Hannah wants to bridge the missing link between the ships, the oceans, the shackles, whips, chains, and hurt of the past in America to our cousins, aunties, uncles, and foremothers and fathers across the Atlantic Ocean. A history that has dictated in this country where African Americans could live, where we could go to school, where we work, where we eat, and even what we eat. When Hannah was in Natchez, she met nutrition specialist Jarita Frazier-King, who's an educator at Alcorn State University and the owner of Natchez Heritage School of Cooking. And she teaches the African heritage diet. And so in comparison to the uh, the American diet, which is the standard American diet, which is the sad diet, it's comprised mainly of carbohydrates. And so on the food pyramid, this is what's at the bottom. You know, your carbohydrates and then your meats and then your dairy and so on and so forth. And like fruits and vegetables way up here. But the base of the pyramid of the African heritage diet is quite different. On their pyramid at the bottom is fellowship. Spend time with your family before you even get to the food. You know what I'm saying? Then the next thing is plant-based. So um, everything's like green. So greens or broccoli or just any green leafy vegetable. And then the next thing is um, like sweet potatoes. Up top is like fish, chicken. So we thought, God, that's interesting if we could bring that back to Louisville. Particularly in a neighborhood called Smoketown. The neighborhood has had a black presence since the Civil War. Today, it's still predominantly black, and ailments like diabetes and cancer are unfortunately common there and other neighborhoods like it. According to the city's 2014 health equity report, the diabetes death rate in Smoketown is 82 deaths per 100,000 people. The average in Louisville is 28. For cancer, the rate is 269 deaths per 100,000 people in Smoketown. The average in Louisville is 190. If you live in Smoketown, your life expectancy is eight years less than any, anywhere else in the city. So many issues around food that it's not just food. The complex reality Hannah alludes to could be its own story, and one that deserves to be told. For today, we'll focus on Hannah and her kitchen. But the complicated relationship between poverty and food access is one of the reasons why Hannah started growing her own fruits and vegetables last fall. I have poblano peppers, green peppers. Did you say I did red? Red pepper, tomato, clearly you see the tomato. Broccoli, Brianna loves broccoli. Basil, these are straw, that's, well, girl, it's a strawberry, and we had one on there, but some ate it. I wanted a garden because I wanted to grow my own food. I wanted to have access to my own food. 
it's just something I think we need to get back to. It's something me and my daughter really connected on. We come out here together every night and, and water it and we're proud of it and we're already talking about okay now this was our first year but next year we said we're gonna make it even bigger with more stuff um, what kind of stuff do you want to grow next year i want to grow zucchini she wants potatoes uh and w one thing i want to be able to do just like my dad i want to give it away yeah. you know i want to give it to the people across the street i want to give it to my neighbor because that's what you're supposed to do you know uh, that's what you don't just grow it and keep it all to yourself you grow and you give and uh I really will feel proud if I could if I could do that for for the people on my on my block. Up next, Hannah's guests arrive, and dinner is soon served. There's that donor music. Meet Sandy Chronic, CEO of Eastern Carolina Organics, based in Durham, North Carolina. Eastern Carolina Organics is a marketing and distribution agency that works with North Carolina organic farms to help make sustainable agriculture more viable. Farmers have so many complicated details that they need to juggle. The most important thing that we could do for them is let them focus on their farm and we take care of the rest. Thanks to their unique partnership with Whole Foods Market, Eastern Carolina Organics is able to assist North Carolina's organic farmers in planning for in-demand crops, crops that work well with local soils, crops that complement fair labor practices. When you next visit Whole Foods Market, look for fresh foods grown by Eastern Carolina Organics farmers. Your purchase supports responsible small farming, just as Whole Foods supports this podcast. Eat real food from Whole Foods Market. And now we return to Hannah Drake's dining room in Louisville, Kentucky. Hey, Riri! <laughs> How art thou? Hannah's dinner guests arrive a little before 2 p.m. It's an intimate gathering. Rihanna Thornton, an acquaintance of Hannah from the poetry circuit here in Louisville, brought her mother and her aunt, as well as their family's signature macaroni and cheese. Hannah's roasted chicken perfumes the air as her guests chat and laugh in the living room. Hannah moves a chair to offer all her guests a place to sit and offers them water and tea. The women also meet Hannah's daughter, Brianna, before she rushes back to the kitchen to set the table. While they wait, they gossip and talk about topics that span everything from state politics to Beyonce. They eventually make their way to the kitchen. Brianna and Rihanna grow a little nervous about what the guests will think about their food before everyone takes their place at the table. Well, we're ready whenever you want to bless the food, Miss oh, Johnny. Okay. okay, dear Lord, we want to thank you for this day. Lord, this is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, we want to thank you for this fellowship with sisters that, Lord, we say we never met, but then we're all sisters in your name. And you just want to thank you. And everyone digs into the chicken, cornbread, greens, mac and cheese, and caprese salad. Hannah's sister, who couldn't make it, suggested Hannah make the chicken. And that was a good idea because it was the only meat at the table. The cornbread was baked by Hannah's daughter, Brianna, since it's one of her favorite things to make. The caprese salad was prepared from vegetables from Hannah's garden. Hannah also made the greens, which connect her to her mother. We'll hear more on that in a bit. And Rihanna and her family prepared the mac and cheese. 
which connects them to the matriarch in the family, Rihanna's grandmother, who has since passed away. Her grandmother was from Union Springs, Alabama. During dinner, the women talked about the stories behind the meals they brought with them. Here's Hannah's. It comes back to greens. I remember two things about my mom when I was really young. My mom taught me how to read. I remember her taking me down to the basement, teaching me how to read. And I remember she would come home with these big, like, black garbage bags full of collard greens, right? (laughs) I don't know where they got them. But it wasn't in no Kroger bags. And me and my sister, she would teach us how to pick greens. And, you know, she'd be like, no, you got to get it closer to the stem. You know? <laughs> and, you know, you know, now when people cut greens, they cut them. She's like, no, nah, just rip it. You know, just put, you know? <laughs> right? And she taught me how to do that. But I cook it because it's the only time I ever re- really remember us doing something so close right. together. Back to Adrian Miller on what's behind the food we eat. Our food has a narrative. So when somebody presents a plate of traditional food from a cuisine to you, there's a story there. Rihanna Thornton, another poet and artist in Louisville, brought her mom and aunt with her. Her story about the food she brought begins in Alabama. Yes, I wrote a poem about my grandma. It's mainly about the... The macaroni and cheese. The thing about my grandma, she was a woman of few words. Figured why talk when I could let my wisdom, my love, my actions, my recipes speak for me. <clears throat> Being a black girl raised in the pocket of the South, surrounded by men with skin that does not identify with hers, and hide behind white hoods, praying like clockwork that your loved one ain't the strange fruit that hangs from the tree today. I caught up with Rihanna afterwards to find out more about her grandmother and that macaroni and cheese. Wow, this has been uh, in the family for years. I remember my grandmother making this when I was maybe six, seven years old. And like, she would always chop up the, the cheese in the squares. And I remember like, as a kid, stealing the cheese blocks when I was younger. And look, it's macaroni that stands up. There were high stakes for Rihanna when she made her grandma's recipe for the first time today and what it meant for her mom and aunt to see her make the recipe. I knew that they would appreciate seeing me as third generation trying to duplicate this recipe. I know that was something that they would like and um, an honor for my grandma and them. That's one of the, the main reasons why I brought them because I knew that they could, you know, um, could appreciate it. Because when I was making it, my mom was right there the whole time. Like, no, don't do it like that. No, you got to chop it up a little, you know. So she was watching me the whole time. More poetry, stories, and food were shared during the dinner. And as the women helped clean up the dinner table and get together the obligatory plate to take home full of leftovers, some of them shared their thoughts. Here's Rihanna's aunt, Johnny Thornton. We had a good fellowship, good peace, love, and show harmony, just sisters getting together. And it was excellent. Dinner, food was good. Excellent in the story that goes along with all the food and why we, why we eat what we eat, why we, most of the time, the things that we do when we do fellowship with family, friends, and nothing like family, friends, and good food. It's nothing like it. As for Hannah, she's making her first step towards writing down these recipes 
and the stories behind them. My next move, this summer I'll be working with another poet named Mackenzie Berry, and her entire job will be story documentation. The same way Rihanna had noted, like when someone doesn't say the recipe then it's, and, and they die and then the recipe's gone. Like, I want her to have that macaroni recipe somewhere. Uh, even though we can eyeball the ingredients, I want us to eyeball it and guess, okay, that's half a cup. You know, <laughs> I'm thinking, I haven't thought that far, but I'm thinking a book, that it will be some type of a book with the recipes and with the stories. So we probably could put it online, but I'd rather have it as a book. A tangible thing where you can hold history in your hands. She hopes her dinners can help bind a painful history of the Americas, Europe, and Africa, all while chronicling a new legacy at the table. Roxanne Scott is a reporter based in Louisville, Kentucky. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Managing editor for this podcast and all other SFA content is Sarah Camp Milam. And our intern is Robin Miniter. You may learn more about poet Hannah Drake and her project, Stories from the Hem of My Mother's Apron, by going to our website. That's southernfoodways.org. Also on our website are links to music from this episode. While you're there, please consider a donation. Your gifts to the Southern Foodways Alliance make gravy and all other SFA media possible. And hey, one more thing before you go. Please remember, make cornbread, not war.